Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance your physical and mental health, and encourage community. Today, we have the good fortune of having a nationally prominent panel of psychotherapists who are going to be discussing and taking your calls on couples, coupling, relationships, and family. Who's with us today? First, we have Dr. Lonnie Barback. Dr. Lonnie Barback is considered the dear Abby of sexuality and relationships for the baby boom generation. From her book, For Yourself, The Fulfillment of Female Sexuality, to her book, The Pause, Positive Approaches to Perimenopause and Menopause, Dr. Barback has guided countless women through the stages of sexual discovery. Her practical and sage advice is characterized by unjudgmental warmth, always with an emphasis on self-determination and pleasure. Also with us today is psychiatrist Dr. Phil Wolfson. Dr. Wolfson has been licensed to practice both in California and Washington. He began practicing psychotherapy in 1966. He's had extensive postgraduate training in family systems theory, group psychotherapy, psychoanalytics therapy, and cognitive behavioral therapy. He's one of the founding members of the Spiritual Emergency Network, and he was a founding member of the Hefter Foundation. If you haven't uh, checked out the Hefter Foundation, do so on Google. Back in the days when MDMA was legal, Dr. Wolfson was fortunate enough to be able to practice using MDMA in his psychotherapy practice. Our other panelist is Dr. David Geisinger. He was formerly assistant uh, clinical professor of medical psychiatry at the University of California Medical Center, co-director of the Pioneering Behavioral Therapy Institute uh, in Sausalito, California, and research coordinator and staff psychologist and San Francisco Center for Special Problems. He's the author of the book, Kicking It, and co-author with his partner, Lonnie Barback, of the book, Going the Distance. Welcome, Lonnie, Phil, and David. Hi. Hi, good morning. Hi, Lonnie. Good to be here. Hi. So let's begin today by talking a bit about the work of, uh, of, of John Gottman, because John Gottman, uh, as we all know, is recognized as one of the leaders in, uh, in couples therapy in that he has done 20 or more years of research, watching couples through a one-way mirror, uh, doing audio, doing video, and, uh, and collecting the research and presenting it uh, to, our, to our profession and to the world. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that he has brought to us is a concept called the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. These are, these are, are, are uh, personality tactics, maneuvers, devices, if you will, uh, that cause, that he says, cause a great deal of difficulty in coupling, in relationship. The Four Horsemen being criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. 
What do, what do you what are your thoughts on this? Has this been helpful in your practice? Do you, does this have credibility? Uh, is it useful? Well, you know, uh, the the four horsemen are really pretty much um, the same kind of thing. By that I mean, what's important in uh, dialogue between two people is that the person who is listening is able to validate the experience and the emotions of the person who is speaking. So if I am responding with criticism, I'm doing the opposite of that. I'm judging my partner's um, experience. If I'm, if I'm relating with contempt, it's pretty much the same thing. I'm, I'm just dismissing what it is that my partner's saying. Or if I'm being defensive, I'm not listening to what my partner's saying. And if I'm stonewalling, I'm not talking. I'm not responding. So all of those are ways of not completing a really important part of a dialogue that leads you to intimacy in a relationship. You have to be able to listen to your partner and understand their emotional experience and what they're trying to tell you. You, you understand. You know, basically, uh, anything that you do uh, with regard to a conversation with your partner that uh, doesn't invite their self as they express it through their feelings, into the conversation as though that self is important and needs to be ratified and recognized, causes harm to the relationship. And the two kinds of harm that uh, essentially happen when you don't really invite the self or validate the self or ratify the self is that they either move further away from you or they escalate and begin to start insisting upon their self being heard, which then can cause you to feel defensive and set the relationship off course. So all of those things that Gottman was talking about, uh, as Lonnie said, are ways in which the self gets disinvited or invalidated and then causes sets of problems that begin to dilute the intimacy of the relationship. So if I say to my, uh, to my other half and my couple, I'm, I'm hurting inside, I'm in a lot of emotional pain, what would be an example of hearing me and what would be an example of moving away from the dialogue of not hearing me? Well, hearing you would be saying something like, um, please tell me more about that, you know, what's going on so that I can better understand what you're trying to tell me. That's inviting you in. Not hearing would you be with say, some, you know, saying something like, oh, there you go again. What? You're always talking about your, it's always about you, for that, example. Uh, I like to use the term blocking as an overall term in communication, and Lonnie gave a good example of that. So the strategies we use to not hear are easily subsumed under an idea called blocking. So if you do what Lonnie said, or you say, oh, you know, I'm tired of your, hearing your complaints, you're in uh, blocking. And the forms that Gottman are talking about are basically blocks. And it's great to sensitize to how we block the other out and uh, don't really want to hear. And it's such a common defensive strategy uh, that it's great to sensitize to it. So, in so, a general sense, when when a person says what they feel, such as the example you gave, Richard, uh, and your response is either judgmental, so you say, "Oh, you're hypersensitive. You uh, you always uh, 
feeling hurt every time I blow my nose, you get hurt, and so forth and so on. Or you dismiss the person and say uh, something that uh, essentially uh, uh, marginalizes them. Or you don't pick up what they say. You say things like, uh, we're eating dinner right now, and uh, uh, do you have to bring up your feelings at this moment, and so forth and so on. All of those things essentially block, as Phil was saying, the person on the other side who's attempting to get your consideration and have their feelings be addressed. And the, the reason for that is that feelings, a person's feelings, not necessarily their thoughts or opinions, constitute the most significant part of their self-system. That is who they are. Feelings are the delivery system of the self. So anything that uh, dismisses, disinvites, marginalizes, or judges a person's feelings uh, causes damage to a relationship. So, so being inside myself, and I think this is true of everyone, I live in a mixture of receptivity and anxiety about hearing what the other might be saying about me and to me. And the trick, I think, is to take a breath and move to the receptivity side, assuring yourself with compassion that you can listen, handle it, sort it out, and be responsive to the needs of the other. Now, one, a technique that I use, uh, for example, is that I, I literally sit on my hands. I sit on my hands, and that gets me to kind of calm myself, and I breathe, and so I can listen, and I can hear and take in what my partner's saying without being reactive. I'd like to use an example now, going back to something you said earlier, Lonnie, um, where the, uh, the person says, uh, you know, I'm in a lot of emotional pain. Or after you know our meet, our, our time together today, I, I'm uncomfortable inside. And then the example you gave of not hearing is where the person says, in response, they say, "Well, it's all about there. You go again. It's all about you. You know, you're wallowing in your feelings and so on." What is the person who just exposed their their feelings? What can they do when they hear that kind of uh, that kind of dismissal or criticism? You know, you're wallowing your feelings. You know, it's all about you. You're narcissistic. Some kind of name calling. What What should the person who just who's being vulnerable and exposing himself? What might they do next to to open to continue the dialogue in the face of that kind of comment? Well, for one thing, uh, if you get that particular kind of comment, the likelihood is that you're going to be increasing, uh, you're going to be increasing your insistence on being heard, and uh, you're going to escalate what it is that you've said, and or repeat it, or you're going to withdraw. One of the things that you really need to do is to say, I don't want to be dismissed. This is very important to me. This is central to the way I'm feeling right now, and I need to be heard. Well, I think also in nonviolent communication uh, process, which is a method I, I am trying to practice, and I think is difficult, though it sounds easy, in nonviolent communication practice, you try to understand the pain and hurt and reactivity of the other and project that understanding without uh, dismissing the other's dismissal of you. 
Well, give an example of that, Phil. The, I, I say I'm really hurting, and instead of coming back with a with a criticism, contempt, or some kind of you know breaking off, you know, what might you come back with to 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 show me or to to demonstrate to me that you're hearing my pain? Well, I, I hear you are, are feeling. Uh, defensive, or I hear you are feeling hurt and uncomfortable with what I'm saying to you. Uh, would it help you if I tried to say it uh, more clearly, or or uh, empathizing in essence with the other? Now, the problem is if you have a partner who's not doing that. Um, you know, Richard, you, as as David said, all you can really do is say, "This is really important to me. I'd really like it if you could hear me." And if the person is still defensive um, about it and is not willing to listen, you know, you can say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what to say here. I, I'm not feeling heard. I really need you as my intimate partner to try to understand my experience. You know, can you try to listen this is, you know, to let me tell you more about what it is that I'm feeling? And then you have to talk more about what you're feeling and, and not blaming your partner, not blaming her and saying, you know, I'm hurt, you do this, you do that, you do the other thing. More about exposing what's going on in your deepest inner self and, and, and why. One of, the, uh, one of the difficulties that most often arises in this context that causes somebody else on the other side to be dismissive or not to hear you in the way that you want to is you, you are uh, couching your language in a way that's actually... Uh, insulting to them, but calling it a feeling. You say things like, uh, I feel that you are uh, always rude to me when we have company, in which case there's no feeling being spoken of and is an evaluation of the other person's conduct posing as a feeling when it should have been said. I felt embarrassed when you were rude to me at the table the other day, and the question is my embarrassment. Or even better, I felt rude when I felt embarrassed when you said X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Um, because well, then you're dealing with a behavior that the person can look at, and that is that 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 actual behavior or those words were experienced by me in a particular way. You start right out with the feeling state. I feel embarrassed, rather than the, as David put it, I feel that because you can't feel a that, but you can feel embarrassed. That's what you're exactly. Saying. So you start out by revealing your own feeling. I feel embarrassed. I feel uncomfortable. I feel pressure. I, I feel pain, and then mm-hmm. go on to to discuss. Now, how does how does this this uh, coming back to a person's feelings with something that's that's criticism, contempt, defense? You know, breaking off the dialogue, not hearing them. How does that connect with with John Gottman? By the way, for you listeners, John Gottman, Dr. John Gottman, you can look him up on Google, G-O-T-T-M-A-N. How does does that fit in with his concept that he has this concept of saying five positive things to do healing? What are your thoughts on that? And does that work? Is there a place for saying positives as a way to to, to soften or to heal some of the some of the neg- negations? Well, I I don't think he says five positives as a way of healing. I, I believe what he says is that in his research, couples who have five in, need five positive interactions for ev- to offset every negative one. So in order to come out even in a relationship, you need to have five positives for every negative. 
it, so if you're front-loading the relationship with a lot of positives and letting your partner know things that you appreciate and that you like about them and when they do something that, that um, is important for you, you that often we don't say these things, we may think them, but all of those add to a good feeling in the relationship so that when a negative thing comes up, when a, a, a problem in the relationship comes up, there's already a foundation of good feeling that you've built. Uh, Gottman actually refers to five steps. I'll quote it for you. Soften your startup. Learn to make and receive repair attempts. Soothe yourself and each other. Compromise and be tolerant of each other's faults. I think those are pretty laudable if you can do that. Why don't you read those for us again one time, please, Phil? <clears throat> These are the five steps under solve your solvable problems. Uh-huh. Soften your startup. Soften your soften. So let's go go slowly here. So because the listeners sure. are you know, some of them are taking notes. Soften your startup. What do you mean what do we think he means by well, soften? Instead your of start- jumping right in and saying, you know, you really screwed up there and I'm really pissed off you might try something softer like uh, you know I'm feeling quite upset I'd like to get your attention and uh, have you uh, work with me on this so that's one soften mm-hmm. your startup mm-hmm. you ready for two yeah please learn to make and receive repair attempts I think that means when <clears throat> someone's offering something notice it don't just bypass it and stay with your hurt and anger Then he says, soothe yourself and each other, which I think means to acknowledge and recognize in the other their greater good and your caring for them, your kindness. Compromise, which means for solvable problems, find a way to get rid of them, to find a middle position. And lastly, be tolerant of each other's faults. We each uh, know all too well what the problems are for the other. In your experience, the three of you, when couples get into intense conversations, is there a tendency to 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 talk to speak loudly and to to not be soft? Is there is there a tendency to to speak rapidly? Are these things that people should be watching out I think, for? Uh, I think people uh, speak loudly and speak rapidly when they feel themselves threatened or dismissed. Threatened so or dismissed. Uh, those are Sorry. Threatened or dismissed. People, watch, if you're speaking loudly or rapidly, you're feeling threatened or dismissed. Elaborate on that, please, David. Well, well usually people uh, speak loudly or rapidly because uh, they are not being heard at a lower decibel range. So when people are uh, talking and are being well-received, generally their tone, because they're not feeling excited and threatened, their adrenaline is not coursing through their bodies. They're not uh, being bombarded by cortisol and all of those things that happen as a consequence of feeling threatened. They're capable of uh, engaging in a conversation that's modulated, respectful of the other person's point of view, and uh, the conversation goes better. But when you feel threatened, and there are many things that threaten somebody, accusations and judgments, the things that we've been talking about, constitute threats, then the threat is usually met by fight or flight, meaning I'll move away from this conversation and this person, or fight, meaning I'll increase my intensity of speech, volume, rapidity, or I'll interfere with their talking, 
You know, when I'm working with couples, I, I'm often saying that when you start to feel um, upset, your body is also physiologically um, upset. Your blood pressure is up, your pulse rate is up, and when that happens, you actually can't think that clearly. So it makes communication difficult for a lot of people, and a lot of people don't show it. They look very calm on the outside, but inside they're just vibrating. Um, they, they're, they're feeling so intensely. And when that happens, to, to take a break, to use a moment to calm down, to take a breath, uh, to say maybe, you know, let's come back and talk about this in 10 minutes and to just do something that will be soothing. So you might just read something that's different, you know, that, that's not going to um, keep you upset, but not to keep going over and over what it is that you're upset about, but a way to calm yourself and then come back in a calmer state. It makes it easier to um, resolve the issue or, or hear it. What kind of tools? And, and these things don't come out of thin air. We're all acculturated. Uh, I use two models for looking at parents and their influences on my own, and they're like uh, the stonewalling family in which deadly silence predominates and the fracassing family, which I certainly grew up in and which people are arguing much of the time with each other, and the arguments get more uh, dire as time passes. And uh, We come from those backgrounds and cultures. We have models inside us which are highly dysfunctional, and too often we're in that culture without being entirely aware of other options for communication that are gentler, kinder, and leave both of those models. Stonewalling and fracassing on the two extremes there. Good examples. Um, coming back to something you just said, Lonnie, about taking a break, because internally we know the blood pressure's going up, the pulse rate's going up, and that's interfering you know, with, with gentle emotional dialogue, and it's interfering with cognitive functioning. What kind of tools? Are, I, so actually, I just remembered sometimes I've used an egg timer. I've told people to use an egg timer to, because there's a fear on the part of, of some people that if they take a break, they won't come back to the dialogue. They'll just go off on their own. You know, that'll be the end of it. Well, but the issue then is to be able to talk, you know, to tell your partner, let's do this. How about if we get back in a half an hour? Can we meet in another 10 minutes or, or something so the two of you have agreed that you're going to take a break and you're going to come back uh, and so that you know that it's not going to just get left and dismissed? So in the spirit of, uh, of what we've been talking about, it's always possible to say, you know, I'm feeling very upset right now and I'm not thinking very clearly and I'm all jumpy. Uh, let's just uh, take a break for a few minutes or let's just be quiet for a few minutes until I gather myself together so that we can talk more civilly uh, so that I can be heard or you can be heard better. And then uh, you always have to manage your physiology because you, uh, you can get, as the common parlance has it, hijacked by your amygdala, you know, the part of your brain where you're processing emotions and where things are uh, uh, firing off in your brain very rapidly and interfering with your capacity to be relaxed and present. You're in fight-or-flight mode, and uh, there's very little you can do about it because it essentially is hijacking your psychology. You need to manage your physiology first and foremost, and that means breathing, relaxing your muscles, maintaining eye contact episodically, keeping your voice modulated. And, and there are great spiritual models that we can refer to as well as John Gottman. Thich Nhat Hanh 
has been a wonderful proponent of community and couples. He has um, four uh, precepts for uh, handling argument, and in essence, they are empathizing with the other. The first one is, darling, I see you are hurting. Uh, can I be of help to you? And his emphasis is on not dealing in anger, letting anger subside. At least one can then move to hurt. Um, and uh, if it takes 24 hours to get over that anger, uh, write a note if you can't really come up with a person-to-person exchange. And I like Stephen and Andrea Levine's book, Embracing the Beloved, for a very spiritual view of overarching day-to-day arguments with a concept of the other as the beloved. I think that's a very worthwhile uh, book to help couples in need. And we're all in need. I, I you know I, I made note I made note here Phil of, of what you just said I think this is an important sentence uh, darling I, I I added a word darling I hear or darling I see you are hurting can I be of help to you I mean that is so much on the other side of a comment you know that is critical or contemptuous or why are you doing that again or you know there you are absorbed in your own feelings again darling i hear or I, darling i see you are hurting can i be of help to you that's and, and that- the second precept richard is a personal one darling i am hurting uh, i need your help so they, it goes on like that i'm quoting badly but that's the essence darling i am hurting i need your help Go ahead, Lonnie. Well, I was going to add to something that Phil was saying about anger. Um, When I'm working with couples, actually, if they're feeling anger, it's always a cover for a more vulnerable feeling. They're feeling hurt in some form. And when they're expressing the anger, what they're doing is they are doing it as a protective mechanism. They're protecting themselves. They're trying to make themselves safe. But what it does is it pushes their partner away. It puts a wall up between them. And it doesn't lead to intimacy, because intimacy is really being able to talk about your vulnerable feelings. So if they can look under the anger, then they can, um, uh, can um, talk to their partner about the deeper feeling that's going on and bring their partner in to a connection. So anger is actually one of those emotions, even though it is an emotion of feeling, that I don't have couples talk about. I have them always look under it to talk about the more vulnerable uh, aspects of what's going on. Would the three of you, would the three of you agree with Lonnie, two other two of you agree with Lonnie, would, would all three of you agree that for listeners, the people who are listening to this program, when they feel anger towards their significant other, that one of the first things you would recommend they do is look behind the anger and see if they can get to the pain behind it? Do you all agree on that? I, well, I think uh, anger is, uh, as Bonnie said, 95% of the time, uh, anger is a, uh, what, what might be called a secondary emotion. Uh, anger is energy out meant to injure or push off somebody else, and it's the exact opposite of what those feelings behind the anger uh, have to do with, which are often feelings of embarrassment or fear or loss or hurt or any of the other vulnerable feelings that Lonnie was alluding to. And uh, our defenses are meant to not put those feelings out. Those are where our risk is lodged, and we tend to avoid that risk and really 
Intimacy is all about having that risk be invited and feel safe to be risky. Risky meaning to put out feelings of vulnerability, hurt, embarrassment, whatever it may be behind the anger. That voice you were just uh, listening to is the voice of Dr. David Geisinger. He's here on a panel with Dr. Lonnie Barback and Dr. Phil Wolfson. We're talking about dialogue, feelings between couples, relationship issues. If you have a question or a comment, now's the time to pick up your phone, 707-937-5103. I repeat, 707-937-5103. It's much easier. It's much easier, isn't it? In my experience, I would like to hear from the three of you, it's easier to come out with anger sometime than to come out with the pain behind the anger and say, I'm hurt. That, that's sort of a societal construct, isn't it? It's both a societal one and an individual one because people don't voluntarily uh, put their neck in the guillotine. If they're afraid of what the response might be to their vulnerable feelings, and if they've had a history, their parental history, other romantic uh, affiliations history in which they've put their feelings out and their feelings have been mishandled in the ways that we've been talking about this morning, then they're disinclined to be putting out their vulnerable feelings and to taking those risks which are uh, associated with more pain and therefore they are more apt to be angry or defensive in some other way about putting out their feelings nakedly. Right, to come right out with the shield, with the strong stuff, rather than the soft and the vulnerable stuff. We have a call here. We're going to take it. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi. Thank you very much for this program. You're welcome. My brother is calling me quite a bit these days. His wife has left him. His uh, daughter is turning away from him. One of his four sons is also, or three sons, is also turning away. And... um, your question is my question, and I don't. And you're t- you're you're sort of beating around the bush, and I'm wondering about. Um, and he, of course, my brother is very angry, and I also sense his enormous grief and loss and confusion, and um, and I'm wondering, do you think a person who is going through so much loss and trauma, not not to mention that these three people of his family are being aggressive towards him in many ways. Um, do you think he would be able to go to his, to um, look behind his anger and feel his... Well, I, I, you know, That's a I great may, question. I, I, I think uh, the first question has to be, why are three people who were previously intimately connected to your brother feeling in a similar way upset, irritated with him? So I think he uh, needs to invite them into a conversation in which first uh, he asks them why they are feeling the way that they are. Why are they pulled back from him? Why are they upset with him? Because it must be that they're doing, he's doing something uh, that is in common with the three people that you mentioned, and then talking about his own feelings and his own hurt. A lot of what we're talking about here, including what you just said, David, has to do with inviting, inviting the dialogue. 
do the three of you recommend, or do any of you recommend, special time? Uh, should couples have special time that they get together for these all-important dialogues? I mean, and, and if so, how often should they do it? What, 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 is a, what does a successful couple need on a regular basis in, in order to maintain an emotional dialogue? Well, yeah, there was a, a research uh, study done ages ago um, that said that 20 minutes a day of one-to-one uh, communication without the television on, without newspapers in front of you, where you're really able to look into each other's eyes and talk about your feelings and what's going on, separated those relationships that made it from those that failed. 20 minutes a day. Well, that was one research study. But, yes. you know, couples, some couples don't have 20 minutes a week uh, with our busy schedules. So finding time where you can just be together, take a walk uh, over a quiet meal somewhere and, and talk a few times a week uh, can be enough for couples who are, you know, who are doing well together to keep things going. But couples who are not doing well, how often should they be talking? Well, then they have more to talk about. Right. So it's kind of, you know, really being able to talk about the, the issues that are coming up more often. Uh, so if you're keeping, if you look at a relationship, you know, if a relationship that's going to make it is one where every day you're feeling okay about each other. You're working through the issues. Well, maybe not every day, but, you know, you're, you're keeping things current and you're making sure that whatever issues come up, you're able to deal with them so that they are um, not hovering over and, and creating this huge lump like in a carpet where you're going to just fall over it and everything's going to fall apart. So uh, if you have more conflict, then it requires more time to be able to talk about it and probably more learning of skills so that you can deal with it more effectively if it hasn't been able to be dealt with effectively until now. Well, it sure uh, sounds and to also me. this, Richard, this is hard stuff. We're on the radio yes. <clears throat> talking disimpassionately from our own mm-hmm. lives. But I think we all know this is hard stuff. None of us get through unscathed with despite all our methods, practicing them is difficult, dealing with others is difficult, and, uh, you know, finding a, a consistency of love and compassion for oneself and others is a hard program to follow. We it's, fail. Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we should have compassion for that as well. Yes. This is tough stuff. This is tough stuff, and it sure sounds to me like we a lot of couples should be thinking about actually scheduling this tough stuff on a regular basis. I'm going to take another call here. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for the program. You're welcome. Um, I wish I could have heard this program 20 years ago. Ah. Uh. Before. But uh, the reason I called was, uh, oh, this is uh, Ole from Little River, by the way. Hi. I wanted to uh, ask your guest, uh, or, or I wanted to share this. About 20 years ago, I was at a workshop, and... I discovered something about uh, speaking, uh, where the uh, the the instructor was saying he talked about the thymus button, which is pushing the tip of the tongue hard up against the upper palate, and it, as a way to instead of sitting on your hands, uh, it seems to it seems to help me to not uh, interrupt or lash out to listen. I, don't know. I think that's a very sensitive. That's a very sensible thing. It, you know, it it brings you back to focusing on your own 
calming techniques, whatever those techniques might might uh, might be, uh, that's a very sensible thing. Yeah, thank it, you. It, that's a terrific idea. That's a terrific yeah. idea, isn't it? Yeah. Because, yeah. because how often do we ourselves and how often in our work do we listen to couples and almost immediately after one person begins sp- uh, finishes speaking, the other person comes right back. I mean, it's just like there's a nanosecond in between. And I know when someone does that with me or they start to interrupt, it leaves me feeling that they're not really hearing what I'm saying because I'm, you know, how could they be hearing me if they're coming back so quickly or they're coming back right in the middle of what I'm saying? Do they really get my guts, you know? Do they know what, 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 what my heartache is if they're coming back? That's a great one. Tongue up against the roof of the mouth. Let's take this now that's a, that's also a strong meditative practice in the Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, that's the positions, and you put your tongue up on the hard palate behind the teeth as you meditate, and so that's a good reminder to get calm. Tongue on the roof yeah, of the mouth. Also, excuse me, Lonnie. We, we we have someone on the line here. I'll I'll come back to you in a minute. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Thanks for waiting. You're on the line. Thank you. You're welcome. A uh, question and a comment. Do you think that people have an emotional age? I've, I'm almost 60, and I've been observing around me that a lot of adults seem to get stuck at a certain age, especially if they've had some extreme trauma. And my observation is that I, I think that people want to be accepted for who they are. We're all on some kind of path, and... Some of, some of us more evolved than others in our understanding and our compassion. But I think that the most important component that I've observed is that we accept people where they are right now, and that way we can give them our full attention rather than judging them or trying to fix them or anything else that seems to be so prevalent in our culture. And I'll take my answer off the air. Thanks. Thank you. Any the thing that, uh, the th- I think acceptance has been uh, underspoken in our conversation here. Uh, acceptance is certainly uh, one of the most uh, critical variables uh, that connect to whether a couple is going to be successful or not in their relationship. But the thing that you accept is mostly that you accept the the way in which their feelings are constituted. Uh, So you can argue about uh, many things, reasonable things, points of view, ways of... uh, conducting yourself, but you cannot argue feelings. The feelings must be received or accepted, and then you can make decisions about what habit patterns you can uh, reasonably accept or where you have to have a debate and make a compromised decision. But as you were saying earlier, David, feelings have to be real feelings. They're not employed, as you pointed out, in the service of making a point such as I feel you're doing me harm or I feel uh, you're you're attacking me. They have to be, I'm feeling hurt or I'm feeling need for love. Uh, they have to be related to uh, actual core feelings or they're misused as thoughts and as attacks potentially. Sometimes an easy way to do that is just if... if um if someone will say, I feel X, uh, you know, with no other words in between, I feel hurt, I feel worried, I feel invisible, I feel sad, I feel lonely, I feel unlovable, you know, all of those are direct feelings, and then you can be sure that's what you're doing. The most common uh, difficulty that I've seen uh, couples run into 
uh, is when one person says what they're feeling. I'm feeling hurt. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling, uh, you know, unhappy right now. And the other one comes back with that comment, uh, Lonnie, that you quoted earlier in the program, which is some form of, of a, an immediate dismissal of those feelings. You know, there you go again. Uh, you know, you're always talking about yourself. You're, you're always complaining. You're wallowing in your feelings. And, and that sort of there's like, what do you do then? And, the, and, and they, they get stuck right there because the person who exposed their feelings, I see so often when they get that kind of response, comes back with something like what you said earlier today, David. They come back with an escalation uh, rather than staying with, which is so difficult, expressing the pain again in the face of that kind of dismissal. And, so, you know, uh, it, it, when I see couples, there's one thing I, I often say, which is you can only do one thing with a feeling that's being expressed. If a feeling is properly being expressed by a partner, you can only do one thing with it. You can get it. If you don't get it, you don't understand why they were embarrassed or hurt or saddened or feeling lonely. Uh, the only thing you can do with that is inquiry. How did it happen that, it, uh, that what I did embarrassed you? What was it that embarrassed you? How come you're feeling lonely and so forth? In the pursuit of getting it, because eventually you've got to get it, because the it that you're getting is the self of the person, because the feelings are the delivery system of the self. So if you don't get the self, the self either moves away, as I said, or escalates in an attempt to be heard. We're going to take another call with that one. That was great. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi, Dr. Miller. Another great show. And uh, by the way, thanks for your recent series on psychedelia. I hope you continue that. Um, the, the question I have, well, first, actually, I'd like to hear Lonnie's uh, response concerning the tongue on the palate. I think she had something that she wanted to offer up. And then I have a follow-up to that. Is that cool? Lonnie, did you sure, have Actually, what I was going to uh, follow up on was the interrupting part of what uh, Richard was saying, and that is that um, when uh, you feel that your partner is interrupting you or you're, you're interrupting your partner, uh, in, in the dialogue, oftentimes, while one person is speaking, the other one is, uh, is, is considering their rebuttal or making their rebuttal up in their mind, even as they're listening. So they're not actually listening 100% to what their partner is saying. They're not really hearing the whole thing, because their own anxiety and defensiveness is already in action. So the whole idea of stopping and repeating back what your partner has said before you go ahead and talk about the other things that are going on in your own mind. Uh, both slows down the interaction and makes sure that you really have heard the person and enables the person to, uh, you know, to, to be able to rest for a second knowing that they have been uh, understood. understood. Uh, so it's really attempting to slow down the process and to let the person know that you do understand them uh, before you go on to but here was my experience of it. And if you don't say what you did hear, the but wipes out what the other person was saying. So they're just going to say it again, even if they were heard. They won't know it. Hmm. And maybe that's where the term rebuttal comes from, <laughs> from the but part. I'm not sure, but it seems related. Very good. Um, yeah. Now, the, the um, question that I want to pose to this is, 
you know, with our overly stressed and accelerated society that we're in, um, and continuing on rapidly uh, with what sometimes becomes sort of a train wreck, um, people do, you know, listen maybe 80%, and they really do hear, but I think that that acknowledgement really is an important part of it because it actually extends the conversation if somebody feels that they weren't heard at least at a reasonable level of uh, concentration and uh, understood to an extent where the rebuttal really is addressing that. Um, but it extends it in that if they feel that they haven't been heard, they're going to repeat it again. So I think putting the brakes on the runaway train <laughs> prevents it from running away. And I think that's exactly. really yeah. good. Well, and, and my question relating to this, since there's the tongue and palate, I, I want to know, and I'm not trying to be trite here, if in meditation or in rebuttal and, and the way people, especially as we've seen in these debates, if you can even call them that, on the political level, uh, tongue-in-cheek, where does that come into the relationship to tongue and palate? And are there points within the mouth where the tongue goes, like chakras in the body? And, and I'll leave it there. Thank okay. You. <laughs> Thank you for your question. <laughs> okay, that's gang. Great. That's great. You know, tongue-in-cheek is uh, uh, another way of uh, expressing uh, contempt or doubt. Tongue-on-palate, I think, is a way of uh, centering. <laughs> Hold your tongue. Hold your tongue, right? Right. When, when I was your tongue. When I was when I was a kid, it was tongue in the window. It was usually hanging there. <laughs> I, I ate a lot of tongue as a kid. We were poor. With mustard, with mustard, with a lot of mustard on it. Oh God, you need the mustard. Okay. <laughs> So I want to go on to another topic uh, now, if I may, and that is um, power, governance, say-so, influence. Let's talk about the place of power, governance, say-so, and influence. We, a, a subtopic of that, of course, is money. You know, over the past few hundred years, we've gone from a situation in which men owned women and slaves to one in which there are now female senators, women spending $80 million on a political campaign. We have a black man as president of the United States. What are the modern standards that you three run into that you think are being held for who pays for what in a coupling relationship? Are people keeping their resources separate after they get together? Are they melding them? Are they doing all of the above? How are they showing the power of money? Where, where, where are you all at on that? Well, money money is uh, uh, many things. You know, it's uh, it's probably the most uh, broadly the most universal symb uh, symbol of power, options, uh, scorecard. Quite apart from purchasing power and so forth and so on, so it occupies lots of uh, lots of uh, psychology in the relationship. Uh, but power is uh, much more broadly constituted in a relationship. Uh, and the healthiest relationships are the most democratic of relationships, in my view, uh, where each person gets a vote on how the relationship is being conducted. So somebody who has a great deal more money than their partner may uh, wield uh, undemocratic influence, which is always going to be uh, addressed in some way by the other partner uh, that's compensating for that influence. You try to make uh, a relationship as democratic as possible with regard to governance and say-so, 
And I think you have the healthiest kind of relationship when you do that. That requires compromise and negotiations. And, of course, relationships are predicated on the quality of their negotiations. I think the key word is sharing. And in this world of uh, haves and have-nots, the 99% and the 1%, the model is for not sharing. And we need to create great models for sharing both as couples, families, and in the wider society. So many of us have so much more than others. How do we uh, really give without expecting back, give fully and lovingly, and receive fully and lovingly and and in honesty? So I, I, I think sharing is a great saving motif, sharing with kindness and love. I agree with both of them, which is that, you know, relationships each work out their own ways of doing it. But when you are really a unit, that means that you're working together and you're making your decisions together and uh, you're listening to each other and you're trying to meet each other's needs so that both people feel happy and satisfied in the relationship. What David was saying about one person, one vote sounds very, sounds critical, uh, otherwise, we have uh, dominance in the relationship, don't we? I mean, and, and that's what you're alluding to, Phil, talking about the 1% and the 99%. So whether it's in, in the government, where someone who has a great deal of money can influence government leaders, or whether it's in our relationship, where one person has more money, more size, perhaps... Uh, that's an interesting issue of, of, of how size, you know, physical size relates to this power. But what, it sounds like what the three of you are all rather strongly advocating is some kind of negotiation and compromise so that there's an equality of voting. Is that correct? Yeah, and I, I think that uh, it's pretty certain that if uh, somebody has uh, a lot more power and abuses that power, uh, in a relationship, the uh, the opposite partner is very apt to uh, bring that power down by indirect means and to undermine the relationship and assert their power uh, in a way that then begins to start causing trouble into the relationship. Nobody healthily in a relationship likes to be disempowered, unheard, or feel as though they only have twenty uh, percent of the vote as to how that relationship proceeds. It doesn't work that way. The system begins to start addressing that disparity in power uh, through techniques that are often very pathological and harmful to the relationship. So what we want is frontality, openness of conversation, and a democratic uh, relationship in which power is distributed fairly evenly. I would say it's kind of a negative power that the other person will use if they can't uh, win or, or have themselves heard in a positive way. So they will dig their heels in and not do, they will thwart the other person, they will not be interested in having sex with the other person, uh, they will be passive-aggressive, all of those kinds of techniques to assert a power in a situation they don't feel that they really have a, a voice in. I think the uh, short form is nobody wins in a power-dominated relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When there's a great financial disparity in a couple, uh, is it possible to have a balance of power? 
I mean, wh what's a person supposed to do if, say, the male or the female, doesn't matter either way, is making, say, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year, and the other person comes home and, and lays a $50,000 present on them? It, it doesn't I think that that there are lots of ways in which uh, power is uh, expressed or in which uh, democracy uh, is asserted. So somebody may have more money, but the other person may have more talents with respect to dealing with the issues that uh, you know that the uh, that the home involves. Uh, that they're a great cook. That they uh, take better care of the uh, of the cars. Uh, that they do more with the kids. Uh, that there's always something in which that uh, disparity is redressed. The, the bottom line underneath all the accoutrements, be it you know money or, or whatever else, is that we're all really the same in, underneath, aren't we? Or are we? I mean, aren't we just people inside there living in these transporters and, and making this money or making this power or whatever else it is? Yes, but we have great differences, too, within that framework that often alienate us and, and get us hurt and lead to misunderstanding. I think the bloom of an initial relationship can encompass great differences, but over time, I think what we see as couples therapists is that people begin to distort more and more and make differences into something that they need to change and invalidate, and that that's a good part of what we do as therapists is helping to write back to an understanding that differences are real and people are different personalities and different characteristics and different backgrounds, and that needs to be factored in to the culture in a kind way. I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I, that is one of the major issues that I see, and it's, the, it's being able to look at things and accept them as differences as opposed to right and wrong. Say that again, so that, Lonnie. Please say that again. That's very important. Well, just that... that are the way that we're responding to something is just different, or our values, you know, of wanting a nice car or not caring about a nice car. And one is not right and the other wrong. It's just that we're different in that way. And to be able to accept each person with the, what's important to them and to understand that and to value it because it's important to the other person, as opposed to saying, well, you know, social engagements are really important to me, therefore the fact that you don't want to go, there's something wrong with you. Yes. So to remind ourselves over and over again that different does not mean deficient. Different simply means different. Mm -hmm. and, and yet we also search for some kind of a balance between acceptance and compromise, don't we? Um, because in, in some way, if you fully accept me, do I need to compromise at all? Well, I could fully accept you, but I might have very different needs. So how are we going to work out, uh, you know, what movie we're going to go to tonight? So, if we're always doing what you want, then that won't work. If we're always doing what I want, that won't work. You know, sometimes we'll do what you want, and sometimes we do what I want, and that's accepting that both, both of us are, have different needs. And I have to remind myself in that vignette that you're wanting me to compromise does not mean you don't accept me. It just means that we have different needs at that particular time. Yeah, and I think needs are crucial. Within the nonviolent uh, uh, format, 
recognizing the needs and that we have different emphasis on different needs and that makes us different uh, is a real imperative. Well, believe it or not, we're coming to the end of our time. If any of the three of you have any last minute word that you want to put in, now's the time to do it. Hello. Hello. <laughs> well, what happened? I want to thank the three of you very much for today's panel, Dr. Lonnie Barback, Dr. Phil Wolfson, Dr. David Geisinger, my colleagues and dear friends. I love all three of you. I hope it's okay that I said that on the air, and if it's not, I said it anyway. And I, <laughs> and I want to thank all of you for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend Mike DeLora. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock California time. I'll be interviewing Dr. and psychologist and rabbi Michael Lerner. Also, if you want to comment about today's program, please go to Facebook and write something in on Mind Body Health Politics. Until then, until next two weeks from now, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.